This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that nearly 40 million individuals in the U.S. have migraine headaches, and they're responsible for a significant amount of lost productivity as well as healthcare costs. The estimates of the economic impact of migraines in the U.S. alone approaches $36 billion a year. Many of our patients struggle with adequate management of their migraines, and healthcare providers are often confused about the many treatment options we now have available. So this podcast will continue our symposium on headaches with our guest, Dr. Michael Coutrer, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. We'll discuss and clarify the various treatment options for migraines. Michael, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Daryl. Before we talk about treatment options, let's talk about what actually is a migraine headache and what do they consist of? How do we determine that a patient's actually having migraines? Well, uh, migraine actually is a lot more than just a bad headache. About a third of people experience fairly frightening neurological symptoms that precede the headache. Then it's often followed by the headache, but sometimes they occur even in the absence of the severe headache. These symptoms can include a transient blindness where they see a shimmering blind spot that expands across their vision. Other people experience unilateral numbness and tingling that moves across their face, down their arm and leg, also very frightening. Sometimes people even experience a transient aphasia where they can't think of the right word, they can't understand what's being said to them. Also, very worrisome to patients and probably the least common of these neurological symptoms is the motor aura or the hemiplegic migraine in which a person becomes really almost paralyzed on one side of their body. In the typical progression, about 30 minutes later, then the headache starts. And obviously the headache uh, is sort of the centerpiece of the syndrome and certainly the focus of most of our therapies. The headache itself is of moderate to severe intensity. It develops over a period of 30 minutes to an hour and persists if untreated for more than four hours. This headache, if you attempt to carry out physical or mental exertion during the headache, actually worsens things. And also the headache, when it's at its height, is often accompanied by nausea, sometimes with vomiting, light sound sensitivity, and overwhelming fatigue. So uh, that's sort of the thumbnail sketch for uh, a migraine attack. It's quite disabling for people. Sometimes the neurological symptoms are what bring people in for evaluation to rule out a stroke. What we end up managing in most instances and what most of the treatments are focused on is the bad headache. All right. And I have had quite a few patients who, with their first migraine episode, were quite frightened because they did have other neurologic symptoms. And once they come to expect it, then it's different. But for that very first one, it can be very frightening to them. So when I see a patient with migraines and they are seeking treatment from me, the first decision I generally have to make is, do I treat this patient's individual headaches or do I try to prevent them? Can you kind of run through that? How should we make that decision? Typically, what we do is divide the headaches into low-frequency episodic, which is up to about two days per week, versus 
high frequency episodic, which would be anywhere from about nine days per month up to uh, 15 days per month, which would be high frequency episodic or chronic migraine, which is 15 days a month or greater. Typically, the people with the low frequency episodic migraine, we try to come up with an effective abortive or acute treatment strategy. For those that have the high frequency episodic or the chronic migraine, they generally require uh, a prophylactic strategy. This can be medical therapies. It can be botulinum toxin injections. There are some new injectable uh, strategies that are available to us now. So compared to when I came into the field a number of years ago, patients have a lot of options, which is very encouraging, but it can be confusing to the patients because they see these various advertisements and they don't know exactly where to start. And confusing to us too, because we are now overwhelmed with treatment options. And when I first started practice, there weren't a lot of options available, but we do have them now. So before we talk about the pharmacologic options, let's talk about non-pharmacologic treatment options, lifestyle changes. What's effective? The most important sort of non-pharmacological treatment is the education that we provide to patients uh, at that first visit, that migraine does much better with a routine, a stable routine, things like making sure you don't miss a meal. Try to order your sleep so that you're going to bed around the same time, getting up around the same time every day. Regular but reasonable physical activity is also very helpful in suppressing the migraines. And to the extent that's possible in 2022, trying to minimize uh, your ongoing environmental stress. Those are probably some of the most important and most effective strategies. You hear a lot and on the internet a lot about various migraine diets. I have not found them particularly effective over the years. One thing that you've got to remember is food triggers are only a small portion uh, of all the environmental triggers that drive migraine. And these lists of five to six to 700 types of foods that are supposedly need to be avoided, most of them probably don't apply to the individual patient. There may be one or two food triggers that are important to them. And I always suggest to patients that they watch. And if they notice when they eat a certain food or food that contains a certain food additive, and it consistently seems to be associated with a headache to avoid that food for them. But to spend a lot of energy on various elimination diets, I, I think that the amount of benefit that they get compared to the amount of energy that they put into it is pretty modest. I have sort of a common sense approach when it comes to that. Other things that are non-pharmacologic some of my patients have gotten um, a reasonable amount of improvement with this superorbital nerve stimulator. There are two settings. There's an abortive setting and a prophylactic setting. Some of them uh, report a decrease in frequency if they use the preventative setting and find some improvement with the abortive setting, especially if they're having to watch the frequency of their use of their chemical medication analgesic. It's a, it's a reasonable option for them as well. I think the most effective is probably the stable lifestyle, though. I think to get at that, I've had numerous patients who've identified stressful times as triggers for their migraines and others who've said it's the cessation of the stress. Uh, maybe they've been working on a big stressful project and all of a sudden it's over. So the stress is gone. 
but that's when their migraine occurs. So I think it gets more at what you're talking about, the, the change from because the Because all of these environmental stressors, they have biochemical consequences in our internal environment, and uh, they have a biological effect on us. Uh, I mean, we know that for uh, increased disease that we see in people who are under chronic stress, but in a microcosm, it occurs on a given week uh, with a given uh, migraine. I certainly had more frequent headaches when I was in medical school and on uh, every third all-night call. I, I think the most frequent period of my life that I had migraines was when I was on OBGYN and was up every third night all night. I think I had a migraine every day for six weeks until <laughs> I got on a more reasonable rotation. It's a very real factor and something that you can mitigate it to the extent that your, our lives these days allow us to do that. So, and it's free <laughs> and it helps our health in other ways too. So I, I think that that's my first stop in trying to work with people with non-pharmacological treatments is the lifestyle management. All right. Well, let's switch to pharmacologic therapy and let's start by discussing the acute or abortive migraine therapy for the patient that's not having very frequent headaches. Tell us about the options and how should we approach our kind of staircase of medications? There are the non-steroidals over-the-counter, frequently over-the-counter available non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen, naproxen are probably the most common. They can be pretty effective uh, for many people for a mild to moderate migraine attack. They seldom are effective for the cataclysmic, very, very severe migraine, but I always have my patients start there if the headaches aren't too frequent. Their advantages are they're non-sedating. You can take them and go to work. They have few chest symptoms or vasoconstrictive symptoms like some of our more aggressive treatments. But the things we have to watch out for are the frequency of use. These chemicals that we take in the non they block the enzyme that secretes the buffer first, our stomach acid. So if you take them day after day, you create a hyperacidic state in the stomach that can have pretty bad consequences. And uh, if used over chronically over a long period of time, they can even affect our kidney function. I generally try to encourage patients not to use these treatments more than two days per week, to try not have to have more than one day in a row, to have a day in between to allow the enzyme to, in their stomach to reaccumulate. I do try to avoid in patients their frequent use of these combination analgesics that contain very often a bit of aspirin, some Tylenol, and caffeine. These medications, if you use more than a couple of days per week, are highly prone to force the patient into a syndrome of medication overuse headache, in which they start withdrawing from the caffeine in yesterday's dose, and they wake up with a headache. They reach for the over-the-counter analgesic, and the headache goes away because basically they're treating, uh, treating the caffeine withdrawal. And when used frequently, they wind up taking multiple doses because of the relatively short half-life of the aspirin and the Tylenol. So they take multiple doses during the day. They get trapped in this withdrawal sort of rebound headache syndrome that typically escalates over time. So pure non I think, are much less likely to be associated with that. But the main thing to watch out for them is this, these GI side effects. Tylenol, pure Tylenol, can be effective in some patients for fairly mild migraine attacks. Compared to the non they may have a slight increased risk of driving uh, medication overuse. So those are the 
kind of simple analgesics that we often use. Michael, um, I, I've, I've been told, and I don't know if this is true, that when selecting a non-steroidal to use uh, naproxen or naproxen or Aleve because it has a faster onset of action than ibuprofen, I don't know if that's true. Do you find there's much difference? My preference is for the naproxen, and I think it does have a little bit of a faster uh, onset, but the thing that I like about it compared to the ibuprofen is its uh, duration of effect is 12 hours compared to four hours for the ibuprofen. And trying to keep my patients off this roller coaster of, you know, treating a headache, having it return, treating it again, I think they do much better. Okay. Well, let's get into the prescription medications now. The centerpiece of our abortive strategy with prescription medicines are the triptans. The triptans are basically a derivative of the old ergotamine medications that were available in the 1960s and 70s and even earlier. The problem with those old ergotamine treatments is they're quite nauseating. If you didn't have nausea in association with your migraine, treat it with cafragot and you would have some nausea. But in the early 1990s, there was the development of sumatriptan in which they sort of cleaned up the old ergotamines and came up with quite a receptor-specific form of the ergotamines that, was, that had activity primarily at the serotonin receptor subtypes 5-HT1B, D, and F. It really changed the whole migraine landscape because people finally had a relatively low side effect treatment that had a reasonable onset of action that was consistently, for most people, fairly effective in treating their migraine. So they finally had something they could reach for and count on to work in the majority of cases. After the sumatriptan came out, it was followed by a whole host of other second and third generation triptans, uh, risotriptan, elotriptan, naritriptan. So there are a whole bunch of triptan cousins. They all have certain characteristics. Some have longer half-lives, but slower onset. Some have a little bit higher efficacy, but maybe with higher, slightly higher side effects. Many of my patients have a definite preference for one or the other. So if you don't have success with one, uh, try one of the others. You might find that the patients do quite well. The triptans themselves can, it seems, if used quite frequently also be associated with a little bit of medication overuse. But in general, I find this to be much more modest than these combination analgesics that we talked about earlier. Getting a patient out of the pattern of withdrawal and rebound with a triptan is much faster and much easier. Okay. Uh, is there anything new out there that uh, we may not know about? Well, actually, there are quite a few new things. As far as in the abortive realm, there are the new CGRP chemical, small molecule chemical antagonists, they bind to vascular CGRP receptors. CGRP stands for calcitonin gene-related peptide, which uh, is basically the location on the genome of this particular gene that codes for the, this uh, particular receptor. The receptor itself is associated with um, smooth muscle relaxation. It is a molecule, the molecule itself is released from activated C fibers in the meninges and rises uh, in the context of an acute migraine attack, it, along with uh, levels of substance P and neurokinin A, was, this was identified back in the early 1990s. And they found that if adequately treated, the levels of these, the CGRP substance would fall. And they found also that in people who are 
susceptible to migraine, infusion of this substance would trigger a migraine. So that led to the development of these agents. First, the small molecule uh, chemical antagonist about 10 years ago. In the initial development, they were found to be pretty effective uh, at aborting a migraine. Then they tried to expand it into a a chemical antagonist that was a preventative and gave it to a subset of patients in a trial on a daily basis. And for that early form uh, of the drug, they had some liver function test problems. The liver function test rose. So that sort of put a hold on that. But now there are a new generation of these, remigipant and ubrogipant, which are small molecule chemical antagonists that are can be used as an abortive agent. The remigipant has a very long half-life. It lasts about two days. It is effective, I would say, I don't know, in my experience, probably about 40% of the time. I don't think that this class is quite as consistently effective as the triptans, but in a subset of people, they can be quite effective. Uh, Ubrojapant, slightly shorter half-life, but also very effective in in many people. The big advantage that I see to this new class of abortive agents is they do not have any of the vasoconstrictive effect of the triptans. For years, my patients who had migraine, if they had known coronary artery disease or difficult to control hypertension or an unruptured aneurysm, I was really hamstrung as far as an effective abortive agent to give them because you don't want to give something that causes vasoconstriction to someone who already has known atherosclerotic plaques in their coronary arteries because cause chest pain or worse. So we didn't have any place to go with those patients and it was a struggle. This has changed all that. So now we have an available treatment. The other sort of new kid on the block as far as abortive agents is lesmiditan, which is a new selective 5-HT1F it's basically they took the sumatriptan and they developed a, an agent that was only acts as an agonist at 5-HT1F, not with the 5-HT1B or D. And the B subtype is what causes the vasoconstriction. So it too can be given to people that have vascular disease. And in some patients, it can be very effective. Much to my surprise, though, uh, it's actually quite sedating. And in fact, you're not supposed to drive for a number of hours after taking the lesmiditan. This is a surprise to me because the sumatriptan, which has activity at 5-HT1B, D, and F, is not sedating. So that was a little bit of a surprise. But we have a place to go now with these patients with known vascular disease, with the treatments that are actually much more effective than the non or the kind of pure analgesics, but without the vasoconstriction. All right. Let's talk about a little bit of controversy here. Is there a role for opioids in the management of patients with chronic migraines? Among headache specialists, there is no controversy. This is a chronic condition that requires repeated dosing. I don't think any of my colleagues that are subspecialists in this area use opioids or opiates at this point. The downside is so much greater than the potential upside. I had two years ago when I had patients with known vascular disease would have to use this occasionally and patients with bad cluster headache or some other horrible condition. But we have options now that allow us not to go there. And the kind of important thing to remember is 
if used more than very occasionally, these opiates have a paradoxical lowering effect on a patient's pain threshold. So their system, their nervous system is exposed too often. The headaches just get worse. They get more severe and things just sort of spin out of control. So I avoid uh, this particular class in all my patients. Another option that um, I had to use earlier in, the, in my career and is being used less often today is the combination analgesic that contains the uh, barbiturate butalbital. Yeah. When I came into the field in the 1990s, it was widely used. It was widely overused. I had patients come in to see me at the first visit and expect a refill on that prescription where they could take nine, 10 butalbital tablets a day. Inevitably, they were suffering with very severe migraine. And in fact, it was in the butalbital population and the opiate population that the whole notion of medication overuse headache was born. It's sort of crept out and now non-steroids are being blamed and Tylenol is being blamed. But in my experience, those are much, much less likely to cause. In fact, I have some real doubt in my mind that a pure non-steroidal causes medication overuse headache. Because after all of the 1980s, they had clinical trials where they gave people naproxen and other non-steroidals on a daily basis, and they were quite effective as a prophylactic agent. So how can it be an effective prophylactic agent and also cause medication overuse? Well, let's talk about prophylactic medications. What should we be using for migraine prevention? There are quite a lot of choices, quite a lot of choices extending back to old blood pressure modulating medicines, like the beta adrenergic blockers that started to be used for migraine in the 1970s, verapamil, a calcium channel blocker, nemotapine sometimes used, and sometimes quite effectively in the treatment of migraine. In the 1990s, the anticonvulsants came on the stage. Uh, the main anticonvulsants that we use now would be something like topiramate or Depakote or gabapentin in some cases. The other classes would be antidepressants. Uh, those are a fairly old class. Amitriptyline, kind of the flagship of that. Nortriptyline sometimes is uh, often effective. And, you know, it's very interesting. There's quite a specificity in the kind of prophylactic treatment that patients often respond to. And it's my contention that probably the type of prophylaxis that a patient responds to uh, is related to the actual molecular underlying cause of their migraine. And I've seen it over the years. Uh, if mom responds wonderfully to a tricyclic, there's a good chance that the daughter's going to respond to a tricyclic. Same for the beta blockers. I think that's one of our greatest challenges in this field today is figuring out the right medicine to use in a given patient because it unfortunately often results in repeated trial and error, little mini clinical trials with an N of one. And that's really requires tremendous patience in our patients. You know, they put up with side effects, some cases expense. It can be months or sometimes even a year or two before we find something that actually works for them. So mm -hmm. they really deserve better than that. Uh, but that's kind of the state of the art that we're in now. More recently, other things have become available that more effective, actually, 
uh, at least in a larger percentage of patients, but still not universally effective. There's no universally effective prophylactic treatment uh, for migraine. I'm referring to first kind of in the early 2000s, the botulinum toxin injections. It's kind of a funny thing. The doctor that reported botulinum toxin injections to be effective in migraine was an aesthetic dermatologist in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had a certain population that was using it for cosmetic reasons. And he f- noticed that a lot of his patients came back and you know said, you know, wrinkles, schminkles, my migraines are better. <laughs> I need I need more of that Botox. And so he reported it and they went back and did post-hoke uh, clinical trials. And sure enough, in a pretty reasonable percentage of patients, it has a profound effect at lowering uh, the both the severity and the frequency of the attacks. And it's really one of the mainstays of our current therapy in people that we have either had struggled to find a, a well-tolerated or effective treatment. The most recent class of prophylaxis that has come out in the past few years are the CGRP antibodies. Now, if you remember, I was referring to before, the chemical antagonists, the early ones caused a rise in liver function tests when they were given to people on a chronic basis. So the industry said, well, we still think this is a good target. So they developed these antibodies and there are three of them. Well, there are actually four. One is an IV. There are three sub-Q that one of which targets the receptor itself. The antibody binds to the receptor, blocks the ability of the CGRP to bind to it. That's the Amovig. And then the other two subcutaneously administered ones that are actually more frequently used, galconazumab or mgality and the Ajovi, they bind to the, the molecule itself and prevent the molecule from being able to fit into the receptor. Now, the reason I'm even bringing that up is that the binding the receptor completely blocks all of the receptors. And so that's why we think that Amovig has been associated with a worsening of hypertension and with, in some cases, quite severe constipation. The other two, which bind to the molecule and don't have complete blockade of the CGRP, which, if you'll remember, is associated with smooth muscle relaxation, seem to have that problem a little bit less. So although I find in a subset of patients, any of them can be quite effective, I've moved toward the ones that tend to have the fewer side effects. Well, there's a lot out there, and I think you've got job security now because uh, <laughs> it, it is very confusing, a uh, lot of new products, and it's a real education for primary care providers to be on top of all of these. One last question. When should we refer patients with migraines to maybe a neurologist or somebody with more specialized knowledge of headaches? One, when the patients have atypical components of their syndrome, the aura is prolonged, or they have other atypical features, that might be a reason for a neurological evaluation. Two, when you've tried two or three of the classical treatments and they just don't seem to be responding and they just seem to be at loose ends, that's a reasonable time. Three, when they really have significant comorbidities that would make drug selection uh, and finding a reasonable strategy quite challenging. And I think that if the, the headaches are just, if they are every day, it's a struggle for us. You know, we have to go through multiple trials. So those would be kind of the situations where I would refer on to the subspecialist. All right. Well, we've been discussing migraine treatment options with Dr. Michael Coutrera, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic, 
and headache specialist. Michael, you've covered a lot of ground today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. My pleasure, Daryl. Take care. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.